A reading from the book of Exodus. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. The word of the Lord. Before I continue with my homily, I want to just give a quick word of welcome. Uh, if you're visiting with us for the first or second time, we're doing an older form of the liturgy uh, these days during Lent, and so it's a little bit jostling for us. We're kind of we're kind of getting used to it. Um, I'm happy to talk with you more if you have questions about why we've chosen that, but. Uh, part of that is that there's no passing of the peace because the, the Anglican Church did not observe that practice for uh, many centuries, but that's usually where we give our announcements. So I'm going to have a few announcements for you right now. Um, the first is that this coming weekend we have two uh, things that I, I think you would love to be at. The first is we're having a Lenten quiet day this Saturday at our Bishop's House Chapel downtown. This is going to start at 10 a.m., and it's probably going to finish up around noon or 1. It's not going to be very long. Um, but a good friend of mine is going to come and give us a meditation on Christ in the desert. Um, I've, I've been at a retreat where he's done this before, uh, and then you get to go and have some, some space and some time of silence to uh, 
contemplate uh, what it is that Christ has done for us and just have a little bit of rest from all the noise in life. So I, I strongly encourage you to make it out this Saturday if you're able. And then also a week from this evening, uh, our choir has been very hard at work and we will be having our first even song, uh, and we hope it's our first of many. Uh, so we'll be having a, a different form of the liturgy a week from tonight. Uh, I, I'm going to give us a break from all the these and thous if that's not really your jam. Uh, and so we'll, we'll be back into sort of a little more regular, but it is going to be uh, still different because we're going to do basically a, a form of order of worship for the evening that is sung uh, that incorporates Eucharist onto it. So um, this is honestly the Anglican choral tradition and, and even song in particular is probably like the greatest gift that Anglicanism offers to the broader church that the rest of the church doesn't herself have. Um, so if you're kind of been, if you've been having talks with neighbors or friends or coworkers about Jesus or about church and you've kind of been waiting for the right moment to invite them, this would be the one to invite them to because it's just one of those things that's so beautiful. Uh, you, can, you can make it very non-threatening, right? Just show up and listen. So that's happening a week from tonight. Um, we do have other announcements uh, in your order of worship there. Uh, I apologize that I did not get our Holy Week schedule back in there for this week, but uh, that's in your emails, and I will have it back in there for next week as well. Uh, I hope that all of you saw my email that uh, for Palm Sunday, we will be observing Palm Saturday. So, uh, yeah. All right. Let's continue now with our worship service with the homily. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So sometimes uh, when it's bedtime at my house, if I turn off the lights too suddenly, the spookiness of the darkness is too much for my wife. Uh, no, for my children. And despite the variety of nightlights and glowing things, uh, I've learned that if I, if I don't have like a light on in the hallway or something, it's, it's just too dark right at first. So I've tried to teach my kids that if they shut their eyes really tight and count to at least five, that their eyes will start to adjust to the darkness and it won't seem quite so scary. As I said in my Ash Wednesday homily, sometimes I think we need to peer into the darkness so as to better apprehend the light. And if I could continue with that as a metaphor, I think that most of us are probably suffering unawares from spiritual light pollution. So I'd like to peer briefly into this strange story of Moses encountering God in the burning bush and use it as a way of helping us understand repentance, but also with an eye out for the reality that we don't often recognize our own need for repentance or even God's presence given the distractions in our world. Because while I think that our Old Testament story of Moses turning aside to see is an incredible metaphor for repentance, I have to recognize that for most of us, the fiery display of God's presence is often washed out by all of the blue light that we are swimming in nearly constantly. 
This encounter that Moses has with God in Exodus 3 is a very important moment in Scripture of God's self-disclosure, meaning that every aspect in the description of this meeting is filled with meaning, and it reveals to us something about who God is. And we don't have time to tick through all of these items, but there are a couple that stand out. The first is the image of a flaming bush that isn't actually being burned up. And the second is God's incredible divine dodge of Moses' question, what's your name? Bishop Robert Barron has beautifully pointed out that these two things are related because they point to something very key about the existence of God and how he interacts with his creation. To be given a name is to, in some sense, be given definition. It's one of the most important aspects of our creaturely life as this limiting and defining work of naming pulses throughout all of our actions, right? Everything that I do in the world, I do as a human being, as an American, as an Oregonian, and as a particular person named Stephen. It's a part of what both sets me off from others and incorporates me into a broader community. I'm not a salamander, I'm a human, so I hang out with other humans. But God resists such definition. Indeed, to define him in this sense would be to situate him on the scale of being. There's mosquitoes and ants down here, and then there's yetis and superheroes and various deities and God over on this end. But the true God, the creator God, cannot be placed on any such scale because he invented the scale and he holds it in his hands, right? As if it were a child's toy. The entire scale of being is just grasped by him in that way. To say, I am who I am, is essentially the only honest answer that God can give to Moses. Because in the classification group that includes Thor or Shiva or Artemis or Zeus, there is no room for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Indeed, if those names of other deities point to any spiritual reality at all, they would exist almost as dust on the scale of I am's existence. That's what he is like compared to all of the other gods in the world. The God that Moses is encountering here is beyond the definition of being. He is far too transcendent, which, as it turns out, changes the behavior of the person encountering a manifestation of this God. Moses has to hide his face and he is told very clearly to stop and come no closer and to remove his shoes, that ancient technology that masks so easily our weakness and fragility that we can almost forget it because we can just walk around. And yet when he's in God's presence, he has to remove his shoes and be reminded of his own fragility. Our posture and behavior should be different when we are entering the presence of this God, different than at any other times in our lives. 
His transcendence is such that no person may look upon his essence and live. Even encountering the things that he camouflages himself with is enough to make us gasp for air. But this is related to the image of the burning bush, or rather, the fiery bush that does not burn, because God does not exist on the scale of being. That means he is not in competition with other beings in his world, so he doesn't need destruction as a tool of his glory. If I wanted to show you how strong I was or how much power I had, odds are good that I would probably go about doing it by breaking something, right? Showing you how strong I am, which is, by the way, not, not great. So I'll rip a paper in half for you later. But God is able to display his brilliance without turning this bush into charcoal. That's how incredible he is. He does not require the destruction of the bush in order to communicate his burning, fiery glory. God cannot be pared down and limited by classification, and neither does he require the destruction of his creation in order to communicate the strength of his power his ownership over all that is. And I think it is this very thing that must form the backdrop of our imaginations when we consider repentance. In many ways, repentance is just this recognition that God is not one of us. And yet, his self-revelation is designed to get us to gaze upon his terrifying beauty. So when we get to our gospel lesson and the people, just like all of us, assume that the destruction of this or that group is God manifesting himself, rising up in righteous indignation, Jesus gently nudges us away from that disastrous assumption because God does not require destruction in order to manifest himself. But it's interesting, right? The call of repentance that is displayed for us in our gospel lesson and our New Testament lesson kind of seems paradoxical because Paul draws explicitly on the troubles of Israel in the wilderness to tell us explicitly that they are examples for us so that we would choose life rather than death, that we would choose goodness rather than evil. But as I just mentioned in our gospel lesson, Christ seems to insist that we cannot look upon the misfortune of others through a simplistic theological lens that suggests that those who have undergone sudden tragedy are somehow under God's judgment. Paul and Christ, however, are united in their recognition that most of the time, most of us are content to look at others and see their need to repent while ignoring our own need to repent. Christ has this incredible opportunity to give us a theodicy from the divine perspective. Why do bad things happen in the world? Even to people gathered in worship. But rather than give us easy answers, he insists that we look inward and consider the direction of our own lives. After all, even in his parable, which are so often very confusing, he very pointedly tells us that sooner or later, God is going to come looking for fruit on the trees of his garden. Which in turn would make it easy 
I think, for us to obsess over the fruit rather than the root. And indeed, much of Christian history bears out this particular human proclivity. Even now, in Lent, it is so easy for us to fixate on our fast, our prayer rule, our abstention. It is easy for us to remain in comparison mode, constantly looking to the right and to the left to see how we measure up. Christ and Paul both would have us leave behind such childishness, such wooden approaches to life in God, because the call of Christ is always radical. And what I mean by that is that he cuts right to the very roots of our life. He does not allow us to distract ourselves with output and productivity and byproducts, but rather insists that we burrow down into the soil and inspect the roots of our life. Are we living in him or are we not? As we've seen recently over the past few months, Scripture uses this metaphor of trees planted by streams of water bearing fruit many times. There's another metaphor that Scripture and the early church frequently used, and that was of a a pathway. That there is a path that leads to life and a path that leads to death. There is a narrow, difficult way, and there is a broad, easy way. There is a way that springs from and leads to union with God, and there is a way that springs from and leads to rejection of God. I think, sadly, too often we associate repentance with sourness, with condemnation and a joyless obedience, but these things could not be further from the reality of repentance because repentance is breaking free from the reductive pressure of the devil's system. Father Alexander Schmemann put it this way, from the very beginning, to become and to be a Christian meant these two things. First, a liberation from the world, from any reduction of man. A man is set free in Christ because Christ is beyond and above all cultures, all reductions. The liberation means thus a real possibility to see this world in Christ. Right? First, we have to be set free because the world has tried to reduce us. The system of the world works like a paring knife. It cuts you down bit by bit until you're nothing more than a paper-thin person. And repentance is turning away from the worldly meat processing plant. It is a liberation. It is finding life. It's breaking away from the compression of the world to attend to the mystery of the burning bush of God's presence, a holy fire that doesn't actually consume. It is real freedom. My father worked in the Oregon penitentiary system for decades, and he saw firsthand the effects of institutionalization. You guys familiar with this idea? Where some of these men in his prison would become so used to life in prison that it was almost like a comfort to them. And so when they would be released, they found their freedom so overwhelming that they would immediately just go rob a 7-Eleven or something where they knew that they would get immediately caught and sent back to jail. Real freedom is a gift, but it is a terrifying gift. 
Liberation from the worldly system is only the first part, though. As Schmemann goes on, he says, in the second place, Christianity has always also meant an opposition to and a fight with this world. A fight, let me stress it again, which primarily, if not exclusively, is a personal fight. In other words, an internal one with the old man in myself, with my own reduction of myself to this world. He says there is no Christian life without martyria, the witness in death, and asceticism, practices of discipline. But then he defines it. He says asceticism, this latter term meaning nothing else fundamentally but a life of concentrated effort and fight. There is total freedom in Christ. And yet every cell in our body is crying out to go back to that prison cell, to be reduced again to the mold of death and the devil. And so we have to fight. We have to stretch out and find the space that Christ has given us in him. And we have to remember that that fight is, as Schmemann so aptly says, almost entirely internal. Because as David Fagerberg, who studied the works of Schmemann for years, put it, the hope of the world lies in the church's opposition to it because the life of the world is contingent upon Christians constantly dying to it. He says truth will only be found when we leave the world to stand in the timelessness of liturgy. This is what repentance is like. It's coming to this place and hearing the truth again rather than the lies of the world. And the truth is, you were created for communion with the eternal, uncreated, triune God. And your enemy, the devil, would love for you to settle for literally anything less. And I think two of the key ways he gets us to settle into institutionalization is first by constantly lying to us that if we were to take an honest assessment of our lives, if we spoke out loud just how far we've fallen from God's designs for us, that God's judgment of us would mean utter destruction, that there would be no us left. Satan doesn't want us to realize that we are not dealing with a cheap imitation who has to burn down the world in order to attract our attention. No, this is a God who can illuminate the entire thing with the fire of his presence without damaging a single thing he has made. He is not out to destroy you. He is out to make you truly yourself. The call of repentance is a call to come home. It's to be embraced by mercy. It is to be made whole, no longer cut down into a paper doll version of yourself. The second tool that the devil uses quite frequently, if he can't get us to believe that lie, is distraction. The devil can't create anything, so instead he takes God's good gifts and he tries to obscure our desire for God himself and replace it with an untamed desire for something else. And so I say again, 
it can be difficult for us to spot the burning bush of God's presence when our eyes have been so fixated upon the blue light of our various technological gadgets, our various avenues for self-expression and self-actualization. We need to head into the wilderness with Christ, away from all of our manufactured light, so that our eyes may be dazzled by the uncreated light, that our attention may be captured again by the burning bush of God's presence. So if I could just incorporate the announcements again, this is what we're trying to do on Saturday, even just for a few hours. Just have a space of quietness so that God's revelation can capture our senses again and return us to himself. So friends, let us hear afresh the call of repentance with spirit-opened ears because this call is, after all, an invitation to an unending feast. The call of repentance actually sounds a lot like this. Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.